Well, good morning. That's where we are, the Gospel of Mark. We're going to jump into the third chapter, walking through the life of Jesus here in just a few moments. But I'd like to set it up today, this part of chapter three, in this way. As Daryl said, it's almost spring. I mean, it's still cold. It's supposed to be spring. So it's coming. But for those of you sports enthusiasts, you have to be excited. This is March Madness for college basketball. If you're a baseball person, couple of weeks, opening day, all the teams. If you're a golfer, mid-April, you got the Masters. If you're an NBA follower, you got the playoffs. If you're a hockey person, you got the playoffs. But if you're a horsey person, you're looking forward to May the 6th on Saturday, which is this race called the Kentucky Derby. I mean, it is, it, it's, it's in Louisville, Kentucky. 140,000 people are going to show up, spend big money to watch two minutes. <laughs> Greatest two minutes in sports is what they say. And there'll be some three-year-old thoroughbred horses, about 1,200 pounds apiece, thundering down the track for a mile and a quarter. And it, it's just, you know, what I find interesting, 80% of the winners of the Kentucky Derby over the years come from a place 75 miles down the road to the east around Lexington, Kentucky. It's the horse capital of the world, and they breed like the best thoroughbred horses, right? And, I, and I'm saying, why? So I investigated, and apparently, it's the water. Say, what are you talking about? Well, that part of central Kentucky sits on a limestone shelf, a huge limestone shelf, and when the water comes up and percolates through there, it picks up the minerals, and especially calcium, so that when horses drink from the ponds or eat that bluegrass, it's different than the bluegrass in my front lawn. It's a different kind, apparently, because it's got that calcium in it. And what that does is to build strong bones in the horse's legs to sustain them as they pound down that, that track at the Kentucky Derby. You say, what are you telling us all this stuff for? Well, it, it's about nutrients, isn't it? It's about what we ingest makes us who we are either intellectually or spiritually or culturally, physically. And um, I want to pivot. I want to stay in Lexington, but I just want to pivot to follow through on that. If you go to Lexington, Kentucky on I-64, and then head southwest 16 miles, you'll get to a little town of 6,000 called Wilmore, Kentucky. It is the home of a college, a university since 1890 called Asbury University. Anybody in the last month here of Asbury University? You yeah. have. Well, the reason we heard of it, because their mission is to bring strong intellectual, spiritual nutrients to young people to make them strong and productive in heart and mind to be able to work and walk in their culture. Now, some nutrients can be informational, but spiritual nutrients often at the core are experiential. It's experiences I have that make me strong. And on February the 8th, this year, as many of you know, because you, you saw it on TV or you read it in the newspaper or you read a New York Times article, front page, whatever, the end of a regular chapel service, and it's a school of about 1,100, okay? It's not a huge school, but two-thirds of all the colleges in the United States are less than 2,000. Just thought I'd throw that in as an old college resident. And so 1,100 students in the school, 
A young man stood up and said, I need to confess something. And he confessed something, and then another, and then another, and then another. And then they went to prayer, and then they kept singing. And then other students came back in, and that thing took off. And that, as many of you know, went for two weeks solid, 24-7. And uh, New York Times had an article about it. It was a great article. It said, it said, Woodstock for Christians. Those of you who were around in 1969 know about Woodstock, this festival, 400,000 people up in Woodstock, New York. And, but it was this thing that happened, and it said, revival in a small Kentucky town. And what's cool about this is that this renewal, this awakening, is being led. It continues, not in the same form, but it continues, is being led by Generation Z. My experience and the world's experience with revolutions is that they start with young people, oftentimes on university campuses. And so on Friday, this past Friday morning, I said, I want to get some goods on this. And so I called my friend Joe Pitts. When Ruth and I went to Washington, D.C., I was in a small group from 1994 to 2008, 14 years with three or four congressmen in a little chapel just off the rotunda of the United States Capitol. If, if you took a tour of the Capitol, you wouldn't get that part of the tour, but there's a little room just for members. And for 14 years at four o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, every Tuesday afternoon, we would meet around the person of Jesus. And Joe Pitts was one of those. He's a missionary kid like me. I was in India in the late 40s. He was in the Philippines with his folks in the late 40s. And he's a graduate of Asbury University, as is his wife. That's where they met. And now he's on the board. I called him up. I said, Joe, did you go down? He said, I didn't, but I just came back from a board meeting. And we got the reports. He said, people came from 250 congregations and universities across the United States. From, they flew in from Latvia and from Indonesia and from Brazil just to be a part and to sense what was going on. I loved one Baptist pastor from Florida. He's a PhD in church history, that, and his, his area of study was revivals and renewals in America. And he went in there, and he said, I sat in, in it was just these, these young people, and they would come and go, and they'd have prayer, and then they'd be singing songs, and then they'd have prayer, and then they, and he said at one point, they said, why don't you pray for the person next to you? You don't even know him, but he said, at one point, I prayed for what I thought with these people, and they prayed for what I thought was five minutes, and it turned out, when I looked at my watch, to be 90 minutes, nine zero. He said it was like time was suspended. It, it was like heaven. I thought that was a fascinating thought. And so more than 50,000 people showed up. And I'm looking at this through a college president's eye saying, how in the world are you going to feed all the, how, how many portajons you have? How, well, you know, all the practical stuff, that's what presidents think about. And finally, the city father said, no more cars in this town. Got to stop it. But they didn't stop the renewal. It's just... It just is it's continuing to go because the little teams went out. What I found most fascinating as a college president, it's a college of 1,100, all four years. For the fall, already, they have 1,200 applications for freshmen. You couldn't pay enough for that kind of PR or student <laughs> recruitment. Here, here's the deal. When people are set free, when they're made whole, when they find peace, because one of the markers of this is you have 
I'm told, generations of such high anxiety that's off the charts. And people who went there said, you walk in and there's peace in the room and the anxiety leaks out and peace comes in. When people hear that there's a place where there's peace, they, they race for that. They run toward it. And that's where we come in the door in Mark 3. Jesus is moving around his home county of Galilee, fishing villages along the sea and fertile valleys and up in the hills, lots of hills in Galilee. And uh, he's teaching and he's touching and he's healing and he's delivering. He's confronting powers seen and unseen that had people in bondage and people can feel it. And when you read the text, you can feel it. There's anticipation. Listen to how it reads. Jesus withdrew, Mark 3, with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. They came from far away. Here's one of my air maps for you. Ruth says, Dick, when you do that, I just don't, I, I don't see that. I don't get it, but I'm just doing it. For those of you who get air maps, this is the Mediterranean, okay? This is Jerusalem here. Here's Galilee up here. Idumea's down here. Tyre and Sidon are over here. So the persons coming from Jerusalem have to walk 85 miles. The people coming from the coast, 40, 50 miles. The guys from Idumea across the Jordan, farther than that. They're walking all this way to be in the presence of this person. And because of the crowd, Mark 3, 9, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing toward him to touch him. They want to be where he is. They want to hear his voice. They want to be in his presence. They want to be with him. Remember that phrase. They want to be with him. Going on, when the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Here, here were people who were possessed, oppressed, possessed, whatever the language is, so, so uh, covered, if you will, uh, invested with evil power that they fell down and said, you're the son of God. Now, the people in the group don't necessarily know that yet, the, the general population. And Jesus hasn't called himself that. When you read, when we went through those first two chapters, he didn't call himself son of God. He called himself the son of man, which is a phrase from Daniel 7, way back in the Old Testament that a Jewish person would know. And it had messianic implications, but it was sort of a hint. It wasn't straight out like that. But these powers are saying, you're the son of God. And he tells them, here it says, that, he, that he, he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So it's like in both phraseology, he looks at him and says, uh, shut up. I, do, I don't need that PR. I don't need your help. I don't need your accolades. You know who I am. We'll get to you soon enough. Okay, Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And here we go. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, that's the heart of the text. We'll be back in a few minutes just to talk about that piece. But first of all, I want to talk about this. Mark's about to tell us the names of the 12, the big reveal, okay? Now, Jesus has all kinds of names. He's got son of Joseph, teacher from Nazareth, man from Galilee, son of man, Messiah, son of God, I am. I am the vine, the, you know, the good shepherd, the door, resurrection and the life, king of kings. He's got all. What, what is it with names? Well, names establish identity, don't they? When a child is born, first thing we do is to name 
her or him. Sometimes we name them before they're even born. You know, saying, how's Harry doing? And you know, that kind of stuff, right? We name them because it's identity. Now, my name is Richard Bruce Foth. I was given that name a number of years ago, um, this month, actually. And uh, my family name or surname is Foth. So one of those German kind of names. And um, it, it says that I'm part of a tribe, that it's not just me by myself. I'm part of a clan, if you will. My first name is Richard, which designates my uniqueness within the tribe. He's that Foth. He's Richard Foth. It's interesting. Uh, Ruth and I pray virtually every day for our four adult children and their spouses, for our 12 grandchildren who range in age from 32 to 7, and for our three uh, great-grandchildren who are 5, 3, and 2, and then the two that are on the way. And you say, why do you pray by name? And we pray for them by name. Why do you do that? Well, when you, when you pray for somebody and when you pray by name for somebody, you're not giving them value. That's not what you're doing. What you're doing is acknowledging their value. You're saying to the creator of the universe, you value this one and I do too. When you pray by, there's something about somebody remembering your name. <laughs> and I said this in the first service that I'm, I'm getting older and I'm starting to forget names, which freaks me out because I've always been pretty good at names. So almost everybody that came to see me out back afterwards said, my name is. They gave me their name. Give me a letter. <laughs> you know, you are so kind. So, so they name them. And Jesus just doesn't do it by category. You know, Mark doesn't say Jesus chose a bunch of his buds from Galilee or, or this, this group of guys from the same county except for that, that one guy at the end, the guy from Kerioth down south of Jerusalem, that Ish-Kerioth guy, Iscariot. He was the only non-Galilean in the bunch. And this is how it reads. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, which means rock. And if you've read the text, you know that Simon is like this. And I've said this before. He's all over the place. And you can almost hear, hear the other guys when he says, I'm going to call you the stable guy. The other guys are saying, really? But that, anyway. And then James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. So they, and there are two sets of brothers here. Peter and Andrew, James and John. To whom... Them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Apparently, these guys had what my mother used to call spizzerinctum, which means you got fire. You'd, I mean, these are guys that in one instance in the Gospels, I love that it records this stuff, they get upset because of something some villagers do, and they, they want Jesus to call down fire on the village, take them out. And Jesus, I think, is saying, really, boys? That's not really why I came. You know, let's, we're not going there with that. But he calls them sons of thunder. Then you got Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then he does a specific thing. He appoints them to do something. See, disciples, those of you who are Jesus followers here, those of us, we're followers, we're disciples, and we associate with him, we're with him. Apostles are disciples who are given a particular task and they're sent. To follow is to learn, to be sent is to learn and lead. 
And so all of us, in, in some ways, if we have tasks or if we feel called to a particular thing, there's a certain way in which we're sent. But that's a distinct, distinction that's made here. What I know about these 12 is this. Even, I guess, Judas Iscariot. Jesus, by appointing them, says, I believe in you. How many of us, our lives have been shaped by someone in our story? Just think of it when I'm talking to you here. Someone in our story who believed in you when you didn't believe in yourself. When you were young or anxious or nervous or scared or insecure. All of us are insecure, just in different places, right? It's not like nobody's insecure. But when somebody believes in us, when we, so last weekend I was with Convoy of Hope out in Southern California. They were raising funds to help feed the 530,000 kids that are fed every day around the world because of Convoy of Hope, and you're part of that. They're on the ground in Syria and Turkey and Ukraine and 37 nations. Anyway, I was out there and they asked me to interview the owner of a management group of high-end luxury hotels. And I said to him, Alan, how'd you get into this hotel business? I said, like, well, he said, when I was 17-year-old, I got a part-time job in New Milford, New Jersey, as a doorman at the Marriott. And he said, one night a couple checked in, and when they checked in, I helped get them to their room, and the guy came back down. And he started asking me why I liked working there and what I did. And he said, and I'm 17 years old, and I'm full of this, I'm, you know, I'm so excited to have this job, and, I, and I'm telling him what I like to do. And, and he, we talked for an hour. He said it was slow, and we just talked for an hour. Two weeks later, he said, I'm standing at the door, and the, and the uh, lead bellman punches me with his elbow and says, heads up, here comes the new general manager. <laughs> and he said, I turned, and it was that guy that I had talked to for an hour, and that guy became my patron. That guy became my mentor. That guy opened doors for me that would not otherwise be opened because he believed in me when I perhaps didn't believe in myself or even if I believed I didn't know what I was doing. And he's been my friend all these years, and he died a couple of years ago. Jesus believes in the 12. And it says that back to why he appointed them, he appointed 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach, to have authority to drive out demons. Three things. But the first one is the big one. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this one. To be with Jesus is the goal. To be with Jesus is the goal. There are 150 prepositions in the English language, you know, I mean, in and around and above and beyond and about and over and all those kind of things, right? With is like the best. This little four-letter word that means that I connect, that I get to hang out, that I, I learn by osmosis, that we embrace, that we engage. Jim Rohn uh, said this some years ago, that we become the average of the five people with whom we hang out most. We become the average of the five people with whom we hang out most. I'd like to encourage you to make sure one of those is Jesus. I'm just putting that in there, right? But you know how we parents are. We say, we say Johnny, don't want you hanging out with those bad influence. Don't hang out. You're going to get in trouble if you don't, Right? We do that because we know intuitively or we know from our own experience 
that you get a strong personality who's going down the wrong track and you got challenges. When I first went to D.C. in 1993, one of my first times of being with somebody in the Senate was the chaplain, Dr. Richard Halverson, who had been pastor at Hollywood Presbyterian Church and then 4th Presbyterian for 20 years, 22 years in D.C. And he'd been Senate chaplain for eight years, I think, when I met him. And uh, I sat with him in the Senate dining room. And I said, what, were there any passages of scriptures that really speak to you, Dr. Halverson? He, he was Mr. Presbyterian, cha chairman of the board of World Vision, this big group. And he said, Mark 4, 13, 3.14. I said, really? He said, yeah, that, that place where it says, and Jesus appointed them to be with him. He said, that preposition changed everything. Because up until that time, I had thought I was working for Jesus. And all of a sudden, I realized he called me not to work for him, but to work with him. There's an old gospel song that I remembered as a kid when I was preparing this that, that says, if, if Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. That's like one of the lyrics. And he, hear Jesus' language in the gospels where he says to his disciples later on, look, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll be with you. And then I'm going to have to leave later on. He said, but when I leave, I'm going to give you another one. There's two words for another in the New Testament. One means another just like the one there is. He said, I'm going to give you another one just like me when I leave. He's the Holy Spirit. He will come and walk with you and be your advocate and be in you and all of that. What I really liked was Dick Halverson's response when I said to him, how do you handle Washington, D.C.? I said, how do you handle working with the club of 100 the most powerful club in the world, the United States Senate, and, and all of their families and all of the staffers. How do you do that? He said, Dick, I get up every morning, and I love how he said this. Jesus, what is it you're doing in Washington, D.C. today? I'd like to come do that with you. I'd like to come do that with you. You go to the offices of members in the House of Representatives or the Senate and their Jesus followers, oftentimes you'll see, oftentimes you'll see a, a Bible somewhere in there, but you'll also see another book. And I'd just like to take a moment to tell you about that book. There was a there was a fellow by the name of Oswald Chambers who lived in the last century and died in 1917. And this is a picture of Oswald Chambers. And five years ago, I went to Cairo for a week to do some teaching. And they asked me if I'd like to go to the pyramids. And I said, you know, I've already been there, but what I'd like to do is go to the grave of Oswald Chambers. It's in a British military cemetery, beautifully maintained in the heart of Cairo. And this is, this is Oswald Chambers' story. Oswald Chambers was a young guy. He was an artist, loved art, went to the University of Edinburgh for art. But along the way, he came face to face with Jesus, and it changed his life. He left the university, went across Scotland to a little tiny town called Danoon, to a little Bible institute, just, I don't know, two or three dozen folks in it. And there just in, uh, inhaled, if you will, Jesus for those years. And he met this girl. And this girl was a court reporter, and later he married her, and they went to London, and they bought a house, and they started another one of those Bible institutes, and they would teach people over their meals when they ate. You know, I think if I had been taught that way all my life, I'd know more. 
I just, you know, being, Jesus teaches a lot over food, but that's a natural place to have conversation, isn't it? It's a natural place to ask questions. They did that. And then World War I started, and he signed up with the YMCA who were supplying chaplains to the British Army, ended up in Cairo. And in 1917, and he would go and teach the soldiers in various places, give talks. And in 1917, he got appendicitis, and he didn't want to take the bed of a of a wounded soldier and he waited too long and his appendix burst and he died. And so he's buried there in Cairo. And um, his wife, who had taken notes in shorthand when he would give talks, she, uh, some years later, put together a little devotional, 365 devotionals, one-pagers, and put it in a little book like this. It's called My Utmost for His Highest. And uh, you can find these in many offices in Washington, D.C. It's just a one-page shot, and it's really good thoughts, and some of it's so deep, I said, I think I need to read that four times. But uh, the average, uh, m most authors, 95% of all authors, sell less than 5,000 copies of any book that is written. Less than 5,000 copies. This has 13 million copies published around the world. But the thing I wanted to get to was he said some some pithy things, some really essential things. And what he said one time was this, what God, what man considers the process, God considers the goal. Man considers the process, God considers the goal. And when I think about that, I'm thinking, you know, when it says, love God with all your, God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, I say, you know, uh, so I'm going to love God so I can love my neighbor. That, that's, so I'm going to do that in order to do that. If I want to love my neighbor, then I sort of go through God. Right? And here it says that he called them to be with him. And what he's saying is, it, it isn't to preach hard or to have authority over demons. He said, the goal is to be with him. The other stuff happens on the backstroke. If this is my goal, I'll never get there. But if my goal is to be with him, then all kinds of things can happen on the backstroke. So we learn to talk about what he talks about. And he's proclaiming a different kingdom. It's the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness. We've seen this over and over again in the first two or three chapters. And he brings whole, wholeness and healing and purpose and he brings us together and brings deliverance from the demonic and celebration. Did, did I mention that he sent them out two by two later on? I'm jumping ahead. But he sent these 12 at one point out two by two. And then he had a larger group of 70 and he sent them out two by two. We say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not very efficient if you got 70 people. Why would you send them out two by two? Because that's not, that's not good Western marketing. I mean, send one guy to 70 towns, right? I mean, why would you send two guys to 35 towns? Well, it depends on the message, doesn't it? If the message is, behold how they love one another, by this will all men know you're my disciples, my followers, if you love each other. When you go two by two, you don't even have to use words. They just feel that. They sense that. This is not the FBI buddy system. This is the kingdom of God in play two by two, with. It's with him and with each other. So, and then we learn to confront what he confronts. Remember those names and those titles? This is the son of God. He's the king of the kingdom of light. Jesus has all these other titles, savior, redeemer, shepherd, and all this. 
But in this case, Jesus comes to pick a fight. He comes to pick a fight with the, with the enemy, with the powers of darkness. And he says, I give you authority to cast out demons. <clears throat> whenever, we, <clears throat> whenever you say the word demons, and people go, whoa, we're sucking air through it. He said, is that little green man sitting on your shoulder? No. The enemy himself is an angel of light. Sometimes things that are bad for you are very appealing, pleasing to the eye, pleasing to the touch, pleasing to the taste. But when the other shoe lands, you're caught. That's how it is. And some of us get nervous when you talk about such things, but I got to tell you, if you live long enough, you start understanding that evil is real, that there are evil systems, there are evil uh, things that are infected, philosophies that don't move the ball down the field toward goodness. Sometimes you, you see it in people. I mean, no one in his right mind says of sex traffickers or pimps or drug dealers or you can make a long list. You know, I, I think it, at heart they're really pretty good people. They are valued people. They are the people Jesus died for. <clears throat> But sometimes evil overtakes people in ways that are profound and destructive. And they take other people down with them. And Jesus says, you have authority over that. We have a police officer in the lobby. That person has a weapon. That's a means. But their real authority comes from the badge because the badge represents the whole structure behind them. And when you wear the badge of the kingdom of light, and you walk into a room that has an authority of its own to it that is profound. And when you walk, work with him, not for him, he's the one doing the confronting. He's the one doing the speaking. Let me, let me wrap it up this way. <clears throat> I had a moment in time a number of years ago. This was in the late 80s. I got a letter. Never got a letter like that before. Never got a letter like that since. I'm president of a school like Asbury University. It's in coastal California, south of San, San Francisco, a town called Santa Cruz. Anybody know where Santa Cruz, California is? It's like Monterey Bay, right? And it's a wonderful place. You get great food on the pier and all that kind of stuff. But back up in the hills, it was an attractive point for people who were druggies, for people who were just occult, all kinds of things, right? Still is that way in a lot of places. And I walk into my office one day on a Monday morning, pick up a letter. I open it up and start reading. The student life department had sent it down. And it started out this way, to whom it may concern. Now, if you lead something and you get a to whom it may concern letter, it's probably not going to be signed and it ain't going to be good. This one was good. And I started reading. He said, my name is Joshua or Stephen. My name is Stephen Goldberg. And I came to Santa Cruz 15 years ago looking for peace. And what I found as a 15-year-old boy was peyote, magic mushrooms, and hallucinogenic drugs, and other kinds of things. And he said, over the last 15 years, 10 to 15 years, I've lived on the Santa Cruz Mall, which is a big open area, and there's lots of people who live under bridges. The townspeople call them trolls, and they... Uh, panhandle, things like this. And he said, and during my time there, I met a lot of Bethany students. That was our college. 
we would send teams down with donuts on Friday night, have little conversations about Jesus. And I, I met a lot of Bethany students who told me about Jesus, but none of them had any power. And then along the way, I met a woman who said she was a witch. And I'm reading this on a Monday morning. I'm saying, whoa. And she wanted me to come live with her and the people she lived with up in the hills. And I didn't have a place to go, so I did. And I found out they had power. And they did all kinds of rituals and all kinds of sacrifices of animals and others. And he said it was really powerful. And he said, and, but the students at your college didn't have that, any power, until last Thursday morning. And a bunch of buddies and I went down to the parking lot at Safeway in Felton, a little town five miles from our college, and we were putting hexes on cars. I'm just telling you what he said. And he said we had the magic dust and stuff. We were throwing dirt on the... And we saw a Bethany van, a van with a Bethany parking sticker. And so we get and we started throwing stuff on it. And all of a sudden, a blonde-haired guy walked out of Safeway. And he walked up to me, and I turned around, and I looked into the eyes and saw a power that I did not know. And he looked at me and said, you came looking for peace. Do you still want peace? And he said, I went nuts. And I tried to kill him. I tried to grab him, and he wouldn't move. And he just kept saying, you came looking for peace. Do you still want peace? And I, I started to cry, and all of my friends ran away. And I'm left here with this power that I don't know. And I, I got violently sick and threw up on his van and fell down on the ground. And he just said, do you want peace? And finally I said, yes. And he said, say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I said that. And for the first time in my life, I was absolutely free, free, free. You can clap for that if you want. I mean, I'm, that's, you know, I'm like, I couldn't, I couldn't, I could not make this story up in a hundred years. And he said, and I'm flying out today back to my Midwest home to tell my parents, who apparently hadn't seen him all these years, that Jesus sets people free. If you could find that guy, his name is John, and tell him I love him, and I'll see him in heaven. Your friend, Stephen Goldberg, P.S., please put this same power in the rest of your students. <laughs> so I called Student Life said, who is this guy? He said, well, we'll find him. They bring him in, and he walks in. He's about 5'10", blonde hair, <clears throat> and I was sort of prepared because I thought he'd walk in and go, ooh, ooh, ooh. And he, he was just like a normal guy. <clears throat> and he walked in, and I, I said, John, I'm going to read you this. I started reading the letter. He started to weep. I said, did this? He said, yes. I said, well, how does this work? He said, I don't know. I was driving to school. I decided to stop at Safeway for something. can't remember what. Walked in, and while I was in there, I sensed like the Lord saying to me, I'm going to show you my power. I said, cool. I walked out, and these hippie guys are throwing dirt on my van. And I was a little scared. I didn't know what to do, but I just walked up and said the first thing that came into my mind. When you work with Jesus, he gives you words when you don't have words. And then he went crazy and did all that. And, he, and I have to tell you, President Foth, the only time I kind of was peeved was when he threw up on my van. I got to tell you that. 
I said, have you, have you had a lot of experience with it? He said, no, I, no. He said, I came to the Lord in the rice paddies of Vietnam years ago. Powerful experience. He said, there was one time, actually, though, there was a sort of, you know, people can take theology, a little piece, and go down the road with it way too far. And back in the 70s, there was a time where groups of people took this demon thing, and they, they were seeing demons behind bushes and under rocks and all kinds of stuff. And he said, I got in that for a little time, but my wife helped me. I said, how did she help you? He said, well, <clears throat> I was really into that, and I walked down to breakfast one morning. She's sitting there, and she said something that I didn't like. And I said, I rebuke that, or I bind that spirit. I said, what happened? He said, well, I can't quite remember, but she stood up and swung from the floor and hit me right in the nose <laughs> and, said, and said, bind that sucker. <laughs> I, lo I love that story. He said, he said, it's amazing how getting hit in the face will adjust your theology, you know? <laughs> Oh, man. When man considers the process, God considers the goal to be with him. There's nothing more life-giving or challenging or exhilarating than to spend time with someone who believes in me, who invites me to join him in life, who knows my name, who gives me a mission that will have benefits forever. Benefits forever. So the deal is, how do, we, how do we be with Jesus today? Well, you know, I'm not telling you anything anything new you know you can invest in this you can read you can listen to this I, I encourage listening especially for those who just you know reading is not your gig or you can do something like this just one page a day or you can sing songs you say I'm not a good singer he doesn't care what he cares is that you're with him or you can talk to him anytime you know I talked to him in the car I talked to him this morning on the way over I just said Lord let there be let your words speak to somebody Somebody who's in a perhaps understanding that I just want to be closer. Or somebody who says, I just need a couple of folks in my life. Because when you're in my life, you show me a part of Jesus that I don't, might not see on my own. That's why we're supposed to be together. Or, or maybe there's somebody who's just in bondage, whether it's an addiction or some other thing. They've, they've walked off the, the deep end into some stuff. But how about this? How about, and I said this to the Lord a couple of weeks ago. I said, going forward, Lord, I would like to have you be the first thing on my mind every morning when I wake up. Just when I wake up, I'm lying in bed, let me think of Jesus, just boom, right? You know, before I go to the New York Times or before I look at a video or just right there. Or how about Jesus show me what you want Show me what you're doing in my world, in my town, in my work, at my school, and let me come do that with you. What I know is this, Jesus has committed to being with me. I commit to reveling in that. I rely on that. And when I do that, what I get is strong spiritual bones. And it's the Kentucky Derby all over again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit to make your word real in our hearts. For the ones sitting in the sound of my voice or driving in a car, I pray that the, the, the desire to be with you like those Gen Z students at Hasbury University will be so strong that I will seek out ways to be with your people 
in places that, that are so nutritious to me, so vitalizing that I'll never get over it. And for those who sit and they're bound with something, we pray them to be free in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Thank you for your spirit, for your presence this day. We will give you praise for that. And it's in your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Would you stand and let's worship that Lord together with the team. a place where sin and shame are powerless where my heart has peace with God and forgiveness where all the team is coming to be here if the lights could come up just a bit and uh, as our 
as they come, there may be some of us here who say, boy, what a week, or boy, what a month. And you have a burden so heavy that you just need somebody to be with you. Just 30 seconds. You know, I asked my friend Hal Donaldson, who's the head of Convoy of Hope, this spectacular thing around the world. I interviewed him last weekend at this conference, and I said, if you could do anything different, Hal, what would you do? He said, I would work less and pray more. There's a moment for prayer here with these dear friends. And I just want to give a good word of benediction then, Pastor. Daryl's going to come and wrap it up. My friend Halverson, for 22 years at Fourth Presbyterian in Washington, D.C., would close the service this way. He would say, as you go, wherever you are this week, your work, play, place, wherever it is, remember this, that you are not an accident and that where you are this week, Jesus is with you. Go in his grace. That's how, for 22 years. He died three years after I met him. I went to his memorial. I'm sitting in the back. They got big screen TVs in classrooms around the congregation. And they had a service. And the greats from the Senate and the House and the White House came and foreign service. And they eulogized him. And then they said, it's time for the benediction. Will you please stand? And everybody stood. And nobody moved to the pulpit. And all of a sudden, over the PA system, Richard Halverson said, and now as you go, remember that wherever you are this week, wherever it is, at work or play or place, that you are not an accident, for Jesus is with you. Go in his grace. And people around me started to sob. There is power in knowing that Jesus is with us wherever we are. And... uh, God bless you this week, because that's where you are, not an accident. He is with you. Pastor Daryl, come. Oh, by the way, if you're a guest, I'm going to be out there and love to see you. If you've been here 73 years, I might like to see you too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Pastor Foth. Jesus, what are you doing in my town? What's going on that you're doing in my town? Help me come and be a part of that. That's really good. That's really good. Timberline, thank you so much for your generosity. The consistent sacrificial giving that you are doing is making a powerful difference right here in our northern Colorado community, in our nation, and all around the world. And as we speak right now, Convoy of Hope is boots on the ground in Turkey and Syria, and you're part of that relief with your giving. They are making it a very important and a very impactful difference in the lives of people that have suffered through this horrible earthquake. And you're a part of the solution to what those people are going through. God bless you for that. Giving at Timberline, you can give online, you can give through the app. There's a box in the back. Thank you so much for your support. Now here's the deal. You get a whole extra hour today of sunlight. Go enjoy it.